T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Mayor Lori Lightfoot says the 2022 city budget approved by the Chicago City Council this past week is the most progressive spending plan in the city's history. But how do progressives feel? The answers may not be so easy, but we will ask. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. The newly passed Chicago budget weighs in at $16.7 billion, includes a moderate property tax increase, and increased spending for some new and existing programs in the city's neighborhoods. During the debate, Alderwoman Emma Mitz said there's something in it for everyone. Uh, She might get an argument, but it is something worth discussing. And this weekend, we're going to hear from three community leaders from the Chicago Budget Coalition. That's an alliance of grassroots organizations, labor unions, and some progressive and democratic socialist alderpersons. Joining me are Kennedy Bartley, Legislative Director for United Working Families, Andrea Ortiz, uh, Director of Organizing for the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, and Jung Yoon, campaign director at the Grassroots Collaborative. All three of these groups have been active and on the ground in communities around the city. And I thank all three of you for joining me. Um, We should probably begin with overall reactions uh, to the new budget. Uh, Kennedy Bartley, let's start with you. Uh, United Working Families put out a statement after the budget's passage saying that the uh, group has fought back against cruel budgets, and Mayor Lightfoot has fought you every step of the way. So what do you think of the final product? Yeah, I mean, I think that the final product is is quite disappointing. Um, You know, we were at a juncture during the campaign uh, where folks recognized coming off of the fight around, you know, the ARPA funds initially being rolled out. Uh, that we should start making our own documents rather than making demands of existing documents. And so with that, you know, we decided that we're going to write a series of amendments rather than making demands of the mayor's budget um, to be explicit about how and where we wanted to see this spending. Um, we were we were all pleasantly surprised and, and excited when we saw all eight of our budget amendments uh, get sent to the budget committee rather than rules where I think we all know that's where legislation goes to die. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that subsequent budget committee meeting uh, where we would need to see our legislation on the agenda, uh, it, it, not, not, none of them were. Um, of eight of them, none of them were brought to the agenda. 
uh, which we know is just another uh, play in the series of political games uh, that we see happening from this administration in ones prior. And so, you know, the reason we made those amendments was not because we were bored. It was because we recognized that this budget fell um, woefully short of what our communities need, what they've been demanding for years, if not decades. Uh, so to see, you know, the mayor's final product um, not include our amendments is, is disappointing. I will say that we recognize that while this budget is far from what we need, it is the things that we see it in are, are re direct results of the organizing that we've done. Um, and so we will celebrate the things that we have won and not the things that were given to us, um, but we've got a long way to go. Um, Andrea Ortiz, uh, the uh, Brighton Park Neighborhood Council has been active in a number of areas and very strong on the uh, issues uh, surrounding affordable housing. Housing is prominent in this budget. So does that mean from your organization's perspectives, there's a bit of good news or s substantial good news? Yeah, I feel like what Kennedy said, things that we saw in this budget are the bare minimum of what our communities have been demanding and asking for. Uh, we've been a lot more focused on advocating for the reopening of the closed mental health clinics in Chicago. We have seen us go from like 19 public mental health clinics to 12 to now five. And we are seeing these like public structures be defunded right in front of us. So us winning 2 million from corporate funds in this budget is great news. It's real systemic changes that are happening. But again, this is the bare minimum of what we're asking and we're gonna keep fighting. Um, Jung Yoon, you've been, uh... Uh, or we, I should say, we've been hearing from the Grassroots Collaborative on, on many issues, including neighborhood development for years. Um, what's your, the view from your organization? Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having us. Um, you know, just to build off what Kennedy and Andrea shared, um, we are able to celebrate the gains we've made, but it is just, again, falling so short of what we need. And I think ultimately, um, when we talk about community investments, when we talk about housing and mental health, really the conversation that we are um, driving forward is what does real public safety look like, right? And, and what we are fighting for is a budget that addresses real fundamental public safety. Um, you know, and, and this budget fight is really a conversation of how do we address the racism and the violence and the trauma in our neighborhoods, right? How do we treat people who are having mental health crises? And how do we house the houseless? How do we ensure that drinking water is clean and free of toxic lead? Are we gonna keep relying on racist surveillance technology like shot water? Or do we invest in long-term structural investments in the neighborhoods that we need, that we know actually keep people safe? So that's what our focus has been, not just in this budget fight, but in years prior and administrations prior. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a budget isn't just a 600 page document with a bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet. It dictates what life looks like for people in every single neighborhood every single day. And there is a process to engage, but everybody knows this process is broken. And everybody knows that this is by design. And so there's a certain level of apathy and confusion. Things are not transparent. And we have seen this, unfortunately, with Mayor Lightfoot, as we have seen in it to her predecessors. And so we're gonna keep fighting 
for real public safety. And I'm going to want to talk about uh, some of the individual uh, sections of the budget, but one more overall question. Uh, how concerned should Chicagoans be that a substantial chunk of the new spending uh, in the neighborhoods and elsewhere is funded by federal COVID-19 uh, relief and recovery funds as opposed to something that uh, will definitely be around, you know, a year from now or two years from now. Andrea, let me let me go to you first. Yeah, I mean, this was going into this budget season. This was something that we raised as concerns. Like we were pushing like as a collective, we need to see real systemic changes within our budget that goes beyond just short term recovery funds from ARPA. Um, even with the little funds that we're receiving from ARPA, we thought that like all that money should be going to the community as recovery and we're seeing 70% go to payback banks. So like, even though there's some funds going to temporary supports to community, like we can't afford to lose any of that recovery money to like banks or police and community. So like for me, yes, I feel like I'm concerned and nervous about next year's budget, but I think the momentum that we were able to get from this year's budget fight and really conversations that we've been able to have for community. I feel like folks feel strongly about real systemic change and like talking to their elected officials of this is what I want to see in my community. And that looks like real investments in our health infrastructure, in jobs, in housing that goes beyond just ARPA funding. Uh, and you, you mentioned this, uh, uh, Andrea, uh, that uh, the money going to, to banks, and I know that I've heard that argument that, uh, you know, that this budget sends money to Wall Street. Can you, can anyone of you explain what your, your concern is there? Uh, Kennedy? Sure, yeah. So the concern is, you know, we recognize that there is a fiscal responsibility on the part of the city as a result of bad deals from this administration and previous administrations. But we also recognize that our communities are, are in, a, in bad shapes, right? And so what we see when the mayor has the opportunity to either fund communities or pay back banks, we see her priorities, right? And so you know, when we say that this money is going to Wall Street, we're saying that COVID relief funds are for relief, are for recovery. And we are choosing to give further recovery to banks and, and CEOs that we know have made out um, tremendously during this pandemic. We are choosing them still over our communities. And so when we say that our relief funds are going to, to Wall Street, that's, that's what it is, right? The numbers are there. The line items are there. Um, and what we're saying is no cops, no banks. The last time we got COVID relief funds, 280 million of those dollars went to cops. And so, you know, when we're talking about budgets being moral documents, these are the opportunities to show where your morals are, who, who takes priority. And, you know, to touch a bit on the question that you asked prior on like the one-time spending, we are seeing that like things that come from the corporate fund like policing, for an example, they are getting $1.9 billion from the corporate fund, making those fund, that funding structural. They're also getting one-time funding. So at, the, at, a, at a point we ask like, when is it our turn? When is it community's turn? 
you know, if, if cops and banks get the structural money and the one-time money, we really don't see where we fit in. Um, and so when we say it's going to Wall Street, it's, it's pretty plain and dry and straightforward, Craig. That's, that's where the money's going, Chase. And Let's talk about a little, uh, talk about policing for a bit. One of the aldermen during the council debate, Marty Quinn, complained that this budget doesn't address the police shortage that he says the city is facing. Uh, and in fact, he voted no. Uh, some progressives on the council and elsewhere say the city is spending too much on police. And then you're, you've got other people who are just see, looking at the violence out there and saying, you know, I want more cops on my, on my street. Um, Jung Yoon, what uh, should people make of what we have now in the budget as it stands? Thanks. These are important questions and difficult questions to grapple with, right? The violence, the trauma on our streets is real. And I think the more important question though, rather than how do we police that? How do we offer, how do we continue systems of control that are rooted in racism and white supremacy? The real question to me is how do we address the poverty that is at the root cause of the violence and trauma in our neighborhoods? How are we making um, long-term structural investments in the people? And so what's really clear is that not only is the Chicago Police Department violent and racist and violating the consent decree and killing children, um, it's also highly ineffective, right? They show up after a, a crime occurs, right? And we have the most police per capita in the country. And so if policing made us safe, we would be the safest city in the country. And unfortunately, that's not true. So instead of continuing to throw resources and flood resources into a failed and racist system, why don't we take a bigger look and think about what's at the root cause of these problems? How are we providing jobs and opportunities for our youth? How are we giving them wraparound services and free mental health care to address generational trauma? How are we investing in schools to make sure that children have a quality education? And so I also, I do wanna revisit your question earlier about long-term funding and one-time investments. I think this is part of the issue, right? Um, we have, a variety of mechanisms in which we move money from people into the 1%, whether that's through corporate subsidies, through um, you know, fines and fees that disproportionately impact poor black and brown working folks. Um, we saw the mayor balance last year's budget by decreasing um, the speeding limit threshold to six miles above to raise millions of dollars. These are failed policies choices. And what we are saying is we need to take a holistic look at all of this. We need to get rid of the TIFs that are siphoning money away from our public schools. That will create real public safety, right? We need to make sure that environmental racism and that toxic industry isn't placed in black and brown neighborhoods on the Southwest and Southeast sides of our city. That would create real public safety. And so I think our entire coalition is really united around like, let's think about, um, addressing the root causes instead of continuing to invest in failed policing. Let me ask all of you the, uh, the question that I'll admit I even think about a lot, and that is all of those things are 
vital. I mean, in fact, sometimes I think that there's like probably 12 things that need to happen to, you know, all at once to address violence in the city. But if you walk down a neighborhood street, there are going to be some people who say, I'm afraid to walk out the door today. And yes, I want more investment in my neighborhood. Yes, I want some more people to have jobs, but I have to walk outside today. What do we say to those people who are saying, yeah, we, but we want to see a police officer. We want to know that when we walk to the end of the block, somebody's not going to be taking a shot at somebody else who's walking down the block. Uh, go ahead, Kennedy. You know, you don't need my permission to talk. So. Okay. Yeah. I was going to raise my hand, Craig, but no, you... <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think for starters, when folks say I'm afraid to walk down my street, we affirm them, right? Like we recognize that interpersonal violence is a real thing, but to Jung's point, we recognize that those are the symptoms of decades of disinvestment. Those are the symptoms of decades of environmental racism. And also, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that police not only come after so-called crime occurs, when they come, they oftentimes are wielding violence, right? Police bring violence to our communities. And I think that we have to show a proof of concept of this idea that we keep each other safe, right? And like when we, when we ask a question besides, you know, the answer of a police, when we ask folks, what do you need to feel safe as three people that spend time on these streets and talking to these neighbors, police is not the first thing that comes out of people's mouths. People say, I need to make sure that my babies have somewhere to go after they leave school. I need to make sure that I don't have to work two, three jobs so that I can come home to my kids and they're not being raised by people that, you know, like folks name the material things that we are fighting for before they name police officers. And oftentimes when they name police officers, they are ascribing jobs that they are not fit to do. A police officer can't keep your child safe. And we know that far too well. We need folks who have jobs and aren't having to pick between feeding their kids and paying a light bill and, you know, have children with asthma right outside of a coal plant. You know, like there are material things that folks instinctually know that keep them safe. But we are also living under decades of power wielding administrations that tell us we're going to tell you what keeps you safe. And in fact, we're not just going to tell you we're going to get 40 percent of our budgets towards those things. And when you say that you still don't feel safe, we're gonna keep doing the thing. You know, I think that it's somewhat of a false narrative that folks say, that, that folks are, are, are so deeply entrenched to this idea of policing. I think that folks have been forced out of being able to imagine or be creative in terms of what makes them safe because we aren't giving, given vehicles to fund the things that we imagine to keep us safe. Right. If you give me an option between two things, yeah, I'm going to choose the lesser of two evils, but they're still evil. Um, and, and so, yeah. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's at issue. I'm Craig Delamore. We're taking a progressive view of Chicago's new nearly $17 billion budget this week. And my guests are uh, Kennedy Bartley, legislative director for United Working Families, whom you just heard. Uh, and uh, Jung Yoon, campaign director at the Grassroots Collaborative, and Andrea Ortiz, director of organizing for the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. 
Uh, I want to ac actually uh, go a little bit further in what we were just talking about because mental health comes into the picture here. And uh, I, I think we probably should address that for a bit because uh, there is more money for mental health professionals. Uh, the clinics aren't uh, coming back the way Lori Lightfoot at one time promised that they would, um, but is what you're seeing that came after some activism out there on the streets and in the, uh, the, the conference rooms, is that a good start? And Andrea? Yeah, I think that this is a good start. Like I said, this is a floor because the $2 million in dollars of investment is coming from the corporate fund. It is something that we're going to continue to see year after year. Uh, so the $2 million roughly translates to 29 new permanent positions. They're unionized clinical positions of support, case management, administrative support, and like other positions. So we, this is important in the process of building the structure that we're going to need to expand the public health clinics that we have in Chicago. Like we hope our dream is to see one public mental health clinic in every ward that's offering these services. And also like we need these systems in place and support so that we could successfully implement, implement a non-police response model to mental health crises. The state just passed CESA. Um, the city has to figure out how they're making these systemic investments in our mental health clinics to be able to provide and fall in line with the new state law as well. So really pushing the city to make this investments now so that they later cannot be like, well, we don't have the infrastructure in place to implement a non-police response model in Chicago. Let me ask you though about the, the so-called co-responder. Well, that's only one model. Co-responder is one version but there are actually, if I am correct, three versions of uh, alternative responses to mental health crises uh, that are now underway. Three pilot programs, although more attention has been given to uh, the third one, which I believe is uh, a, more involved in dispatching, in some cases, clinical professionals to a scene first because of the expertise in the what would be the 911 center. Uh, how is that going over uh, in your communities? And anyone can take a, a shot at that. Yeah, I'll jump in. I feel like when we're talking about our non-police response model that we're currently not seeing in the city, we're saying that we want this model to come out and work straight from our public mental health clinics. Um, what the city is currently doing is providing more money to privatize their mental health clinics by giving nonprofits this, this funding when we really want that money to go to our public mental health clinics. Um, we're looking at what's worked and there's like years and years of data that proves that non-police response to mental health clinic, to mental health crises have been successful. Like we see this with the CAHOOTS program. We've also seen like in data that when there's a co-responder, when there's like a police and a trauma-informed person coming up to the scene, that the police tends to, or like the clinical person that's responding with the police tends to also police the person that they're trying to help. And 
aren't actually supporting and providing the assistance that's needed. So like, yes, you have a co-responder model, but also if there's like a nurse or a trauma-informed person responding with the police officer, they too find themselves serving as a second police officer on the scene. And that's why we find it really important that when we're calling for a non-police response, we mean no police responding, no guns, because what Kennedy said earlier, like police are also coming in like heightened alert and could potentially be coming into a situation where they're not trained to respond, nor should they be trained to respond to that kind of crisis. Um, bringing a police into a community, them themselves could be the ones who are escalating. And we have seen they be the ones escalating situations that very clearly could have been resolved with just a clinical team or a non-police team coming uh, to the Kennedy, scene. Kennedy, let me ask you, if, um, because is it a good thing that three different version models are being tested? Could, could that in, in some ways help convince City Hall that one works much better than the others? What I would like to see is, is honest and transparent data. I think when you are overwhelming a system with all of these variables, these things are being very, by design, set up to fail. I would like to see the, the model put forth by CCW, the Collaborative for Community Wellness with Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez, tested in, in a controlled environment, you know, in like a, in a ward, for an example. And I would like to see that alone showing a proof of concept of the effect, the efficacy of that program. But when you have three things running and you ask a everyday person, if I ask one of my neighbors, hey, name the three things and which one do you prefer? How do you do that? You know, this is like just goes along with the trend of obfuscation that we see in this city. Um, to make it really difficult for folks to decide what's best for them, even when they know, right? It, it kind of causes un, undue uh, confusion. And so, like I said, you know, I would like to see an honest shot at let's see what this non-law enforcement model put forth uh, by what's spelled out in the treatment, not trauma legislation uh, run on its own yeah. to get more accurate data. This is a, a discussion that I wish could go on much longer, but we only have a couple more minutes left. And I want to at least get a mention in of the Guaranteed Basic Income Pilot Program that's going to send $500 checks to 5,000 low-income households every month for a year. Um, does anybody want to declare a win on that? Or uh, <laughs> see, none of you is, uh, is, is jumping on that. Uh, Jung, is this not a win? Um, <laughs> um, and feel you know, free I to tell me, I'm, you know, that it's a stupid question if you think it is. It's not a stupid question. I think it's complicated because our communities have been asking for direct cash assistance. But I think what we really need to see is that kind of cash assistance or that level of investment going to every single Chicagoan. And I think. Um, you know, this is pretty much word for word from Alderman Viegas's um, proposal, which Lightfoot then co-opted as her own. And we saw the exact same thing of Lightfoot co-opting the Chicago Rescue Plan into her quote unquote recovery budget. And so, you know, I, 
rather than working directly with community members to understand what are the nuances, what are the must-haves, what's really important to make these investments in our communities, she tends to take our homework and claim it as her own. And it's hard to call that a win because it's not really engaging community members at the level that we need to make that a really effective program. And so, you know, I have a lot of curiosity around that uh, particular program and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And, you know, um, during some of the debate, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa uh, said, well, it looks like the mayor has been copying our homework. Uh, but then he said, you know what? I'll take it. And, 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 and I, I guess we'll have to leave it there and make sure that when we're a little ways into this and actually doing it, well, that we should have this conversation again and give it a status report if the three of you are willing. So uh, thank you, because we are out of time. That. Thank you. Uh, no, we'd love that, Craig. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Uh, I, I want to thank Kennedy Bartley of the United Working Families, Andre Ortiz of Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, and Jung Yoon, Campaign Director for the Grassroots Collaborative for spending this half hour with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. And we'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 WBBM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.